0: Moving toward a regenerative agricultural business model is by no means an easy feat, but increasingly Australian wool growers are seeing the diverse benefits of working in sync with nature.
1: Welcome to The Yarn, this is the podcast to and for the Australian wool industry. I'm Ben Madwick,
0: And I'm Ellie Bigwood.
1: So Ellie, you talk about regenerative agriculture and I don't know a huge amount about it, so can you give me a little summary of what it's about?
0: Yeah, look, Ben, it's a very good question, and I'm by no means the person to give you the answer. I'll lead on to Charles Massey, who is essentially a historian of the Australian wool industry. Um, his book, The Australian Merino, History of a Nation, is the definite book for any book-loving wool grower. He's an author, a farmer, a studmaster, and trained scientist.
1: So did you speak to Charles Massey yourself?
0: No, Marius Cumming had a yarn with him, and he, Marius is certainly a fan of Charles Massey's work. We actually hear from him today in his conversation with Marius in his new role as a social researcher and campaigner for regenerative agriculture. He's the author of The Call of the Reed Warbler, which is a pretty fascinating exploration of regenerative agriculture, and I think you're going to take some interesting insights out of this one.
1: I was just thinking about increasing in variable seasons of Australian agriculture, the increasing costs of inputs associated with modern industrial agriculture, Is there something in regenerative agriculture or is it just a fad that uh, is going to get
2: moved aside in the future?
0: Yeah, look, Ben, let's hand over to Marius, who spoke with Charlie, and I'm sure all will be revealed.
2: Charlie Massey, um, thank you very much for your time today on The Yarn. uh, Pleasure to be here, Marius. Regenerative agriculture is uh, an interesting concept to sort of get your mind around, but I understand that really what you're saying is that, traditional agriculture or the the industrial agriculture that has served us for so long
3: is now failing everyday farmers? Uh, It it is in some cases, yeah. I mean, uh, regenerative agriculture is is, is as old as agriculture gets. And uh, with the rise of uh, modern industrial agriculture after the Second World War, we're now finding there are some long-term costs starting to emerge in what we're doing to soils, chemicals, getting into our food those sorts of issues and increasingly desertifying our landscapes and getting hard pans under the cropping fields etc. What's happened in the last, particularly the last 15, 20 years around the world because the innovators in Australia are working closely with those in America and Africa etc. What's happened is proof of techniques uh, of ecological grazing, cropping, agroforestry, those sort of things that are, are reducing and cost inputs enormously and um, actually leading to greater profits through better resilience and even better performance uh, without those high industrial inputs. So it's a really exciting space and something uh, extremely precious like um, a beautiful wool fibre, uh, it has big implications for that because as you guys know better than anyone the right to farm and animal extremists, animal welfare extremists and others, um Moving to a, a regenerative space uh, has all sorts of benefits for uh, marketing uh, a, a beautiful natural fibre.
2: So how have you uh, adopted this on your own property? How's, how
3: have you changed your, the way you farm? Well, we're down on the usually dry Monero, Southern Tablelands, New South Wales, so our country's really not cropping. We're not, uh, we, we have a dry winters and, and it's not a cropping space, so we're grazing and uh, evolving in the, in the 60s but now spreading worldwide and, and incredibly refined in Australia. Farmers are some of the leaders is, is what's called holistic grazing management. Um, it's got various names but it's essentially mimicking the way big mobs of African animals migrated and regenerated the soil and landscape functions and ecosystems. That's now adapted for practical management so we've adopted that over the last 20 plus years or so and um, <clears throat> it's spreading across Australia, and I've just been to the States. Huge adoption there in, um, in the ranch country, etc. So how does this differ, or how does it evolve from
2: rotational grazing that was, say, around in the 90s or prior to that even? It's, it's
3: another level. It's slightly different to that intense rotational grazing. So it focuses on uh, specifically on the ecological function, not just the economics, which some of the previous rotational grazing was. So um, the techniques that have been refined... And they're now taught well with schools, etc. Uh, really focus on intensively grazing your land with with a large amount of animal density because the animals, with their urine and dung and the animal impact, stimulate the soil ecology. It really focuses on all the regenerative tools. Focus on healthier soil function, and then giving those grasslands, um, and it can be uh, multi-species cropping, etc. But giving uh, that grazed grasslands, whether it's improved or natural or both, a lot of rest to recover and and continue the root development. What we've done with set stocking, and I've made all the mistakes, so I can speak as an expert, (laughs) leaving stock on eventually kills all your most valuable grasses, your deeper-rooted perennials and forbs. This approach uh, encourages that and it builds carbon in the soil, and it's all about getting a healthy soil biology. We've, We've totally ignored the key thing that drives profitability in farming, both cropping and grazing, is healthy soil biology and the access of nutrients and the, and, uh, the whole box and dyes.
2: So, Ian and Di Haggerty in WA, who are sort of some of the, the leaders in this and have, have an amazing story to tell, hoping to catch up with them, um, talk about the three big digesters driving their agriculture being uh, the rumen of the sheep, the soil flora, and, so- and the soil fauna in terms of fungi and bacteria.
3: And is that sort of pretty much what you're saying as well? Exactly what I'm saying. What we're finding with the the leading croppers now, both in Australia, states and places, is that if you really want to drive your cropping system in a sustainable, productive manner, you need livestock to graze those crops, whether it's multi-species crop or just your cereals, uh, because the livestock enhance the soil health. They graze the crops down once or twice through that winter period in Australia, put in dung and urine, sometimes stool the, the, um, the, the crops, etc. And so they're actually... They're the walking for- fertiliser machines. And that's... Uh, people like the Haggerty's have grown their business, you know, tenfold, while the rest of the Western Australian wheat belt's going into massive debt. They've done it um, through combining... As they plant the seed, uh, worm juice, vermi juice, and compost extract, and and it has it that's totally substituted any in industrial fertilisers and inputs, and, and it's having the most remarkable transformative effect. Animals graze that, and their resilience um, increases as well, both to droughts, to frost impact, because they find in in uh, in frost times over there and and elsewhere, your crops pumped up with. Um, industrial nitrogen very more susceptible to frost damage and also um terrain damage because it's got integrity and nutrients it's more resistant to uh downgrading to feed wheats in a a wet harvest period for example so multiple benefits but yeah the, the point you're making is it's the rumens of the animals which have similar microbial world to the soil Um, stimulating and and interacting with the soil and and um, but the key always comes back to the underground soil biology and health.
2: So from a uh, someone with the science training as you have and I have uh, how do you create more from less inputs Um, it just rationally doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if you put it if you're taking the same things off in terms of protein through grain or wool or meat um, how how can you take more from the system and put in less
3: because by correct grazing and biological uh, impacts and 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 even some biological additives but that's not totally necessary you are stimulating an enormous growth of soil biology and as that in turn stimulates your grasslands etc and the multi-species cropping can be combination of different um, annuals, perennials, forbes etc all doing different things and you get this explosion of life your roots are going deeper and accessing other nutrients and then what happens is in the soil rather than it being killed off and just pumped full of um, industrial inputs you've got the soil biology now accessing the key nutrients. So it's the biology that replaces the damaging industrial inputs. And, and I can just give you one example. If you get a healthy soil, one of the most magic things you can have are the root fungus, the mycorrhizal fungi. In a cubic metre of healthy soil, their invisible feeding tubes might be 25,000 kilometres of them. And their bargain with a healthy plant environment is the, the plants release sugars into the soil, which feeds the fungi, they go off and, and uh, access the, uh, the whole range of nutrients for those plants which gets into our food. And there could be up to 25,000 kilometres of these microtubes in one cubic metre. We hook in with industrial chemicals and sprays and fertilisers, you kill that. And you're left with pretty much drug addict plants waiting for their fertiliser NPK dose that translates in turn into healthy and unhealthy food that we now know most of the modern foods have a fair bit of glyphosate in them with devastating impact on gut health but also they're lacking a huge range of nutrients that the soil biology otherwise accesses so um, what I'm also saying is that this big shift to regenerative ag has huge implications for human health so you, you know we're talking about critics of farming uh, that these newer approaches these old new approaches uh, are addressing those sorts of issues but also uh, it addresses animal welfare and uh, we now know that regenerative farming compared to any other approach can address the big issues that our our planet's now facing like climate and the other issues so it's a huge win-win for farmers and it's a great story
2: Not an easy transition to make. I mean, we've been on sub and super for for generations now and they've served, some would say, served us very, very well. They've certainly helped um, farmers feed the nation for a very long time. Um, How do we transition from
3: that to this uh, new era of a more balanced approach? Yeah, no, you're quite right. I mean, and, uh, you know, we've all... Um, used the products and uh, grown a lot of food and fibre and uh, played a big role in feeding a, an increasing world population. But we now know we can do it just as well, if not better. And I'm not saying everyone's got to shift overnight. It's a matter of personal choice, but there's some examples out there that shows that we can do it both profitably, more resiliently and, uh, and produce superb food and fibre. So how is it...
2: Uh changed your stocking rate are you still running the same number of sheep or do you have you obviously have to drop things down initially before you build things up how does the the general evolution
3: move the big shift for me when I started to see how this worked under the good operators was especially when I had a merino start in particular which I I, I decided I should I had to defend that because that was my core business that meant in the 80s five-year drought we fed ourselves by buying a lot of grain into a big debt and belted the hell out of our landscape because I kept too many animals. The shift for me as I moved across to using the flexible systems of grazing and our grazing charts and stuff was the key asset we've got is actually the healthy landscape, the healthy soils and land, not the animals. The animals are an adjunct to that. And so now we uh so I could live longer I sold the merino stud first, but Um, our approach now to droughts and dry times with flexible grazing charts is is to be very responsive to what that land can carry at any stage of the season. And and we've got very good tools that gives you two or three months warning that things under the ground are really starting to collapse and and it gives you the advantage of selling earlier up to two or three months while the stock is still good and the markets are still good. So there's a lot of excellent tools but it's all about flexibility and resilience. Could that, uh, I I presume what you're
2: speaking of there is also the grazing days also that Nigel Kerrin um, is very much an advocate of. Does, can that work uh, alongside, say, lifetime you management or is it
3: counter to that? No, no, not counter at all because with the frequent moves and monitoring the, the, whether the, the, your country's growing or not, the, the animals are on a lot more uh, even plane of nutrition. So our tensile strength, like last year, for example, we sold some wool which ended up uh, on a small market but it topped the Sydney sales because of its high uh, tensile strength, well over 40, in a drought market where there was virtually no wolves like that. So that's a measure that the the, the sheep are getting an even nutrition and uh, our fertility um, uh, hasn't dropped at all. You know, we're we're weaning uh, 115, 120%. That's on joining numbers, you know, which still stacks up as a profitable enterprise. I'm finding, and we've eliminated a lot of our drenching because the moves... Uh, every two or three days you're moving one mob and stay, leaving 10 or 20 sets stocked. So you're not getting that worm burden, you're breaking that worm cycle as well.
2: And what pastures have you moved towards? I mean, uh, it seems, uh, particularly in this district here, that has been very much reliant on um, sub-clover and, uh, and ryegrass, so was perhaps um, more perennial than anything else. But those perennial varieties are, are not surviving through some uh, more... Uh, the hotter, drier summers. What do you advocate in terms of uh, moving
3: to different pastures? Well, first thing, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert for every district. What applies in our district, and quite a few I've looked at in the tablelands and, and up in the subtropics in Queensland country, is it still in ground, even though we've knocked the hell out of it for over 100 years, is a lot of the residual native seeds deep buried. And once you get this soil biology going, they're starting to emerge as critters in the soil bring them up they're the ones adapted to these tough times you need i, I believe uh you know and i'll grow uh, I, I will sow low rates of um lucerne which suits our granite country at home um but, but the low rate of lucerne gives me deep rooted perennial and yet ground cover which a pure stand of lucerne usually have a lot of bare ground in winter so uh and and, and i'm not scared of fleeris but i'm, I'm a to get our production up I'm about to move into our light granite with multi-species pasture cropping just one hit where I'm going to sow some different cereals to put sugars in the ground to stimulate the uh, fungus and all those other critters but I'm going to put some native grasses on you were there that, that have lost to kick that along as well as you know other forage um, material so that's doing two things it's filling the, the question you've asked of adaptive species for the whole 12 month cycle but it's going to give me um, midwinter pre-lamming tucker as well. So it's a stimulatory thing to the soil.
2: So the obvious question is how do people find out more? Obviously um, your, your latest book is, uh,
3: I, I heard yesterday it's been translated into five or six languages now? Uh, no, no, it's been sold into, there's a, a, an international edition as well as the Australian edition, so it's selling into other countries. But, look, there's a lot of good um, books out there. If you're really interested in multi-species cover cropping, the American pioneer Gabe Brown's got a good book out, Alan Savory's work. But in the grazing area, there's two key organisations really pushing it in Australia, and that's um, RCS, Resource Consulting Services, Terry McCosker's group, brilliant social learning programs, and workshops, and then a network of support and stuff. And same with the uh, Savory Holistic Management Group. They do similar sort of stuff. And then you've got uh, all sorts of cropping organisations. It looks like the the really exciting space is this multi-species cover cropping. That, uh, you put in a dozen or more different crops, uh, either setting up the fertility for next year's uh, cereal crop, or, or just to improve your soil and uh, and have productivity at the same time. So it's, it's some really exciting stuff happening.
2: Well, um, you've, you've skipped over <laughs> your own book, which obviously is selling very well. So um, go out and get that if you'd like more information. But we've sort of haven't really touched on what you're doing with uh, wool these days, other than growing a bit of wool yourself. But yeah, you, you still have a love for the fibre.
3: Of course, yeah, I think. uh, And and look, as the evidence on um, what's happening with um, synthetic plastics, etc., the the breakdown into microparticles and using a lot of fossil fuel to make it, as that comes out, I think, especially with our sheep population down, um, I'm incredibly bullish about the future of of, uh, a beautiful natural fibre like wool. I mean, we know it's got all these other attributes. Uh, healthy for uh, for the wearer compared to some of the synthetics etc let alone coming off ecologically healthy landscapes and um, as we sort out animal welfare issues um, that those sort of extremists that are attacking us won't have a leg to stand on either so uh, I just think it's such a precious fibre and um, I think it has a great future Charlie Massey, thank you very much for having Yarn with us uh,
2: an absolute pleasure to um, spend a bit of time with you and hear your thoughts No, vice versa, Maurice, thanks very much
0: Murray is coming with Charlie Massey. Certainly a really interesting comparison on industrial agriculture versus regenerative agriculture. I in particular found it quite fascinating that the leading croppers in Australia and USA, they're being more sustainable in their cropping enterprises by using large-scale livestock numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't realise the scalability of using livestock manure to uh, enhance your soil health. I mean, we all know it's great for your grandma's veggie patch, but actually using it in a commercial cropping enterprise is uh, very reassuring. And the fact that you can, you know, basically cut out the use of synthetic fertilisers by running more livestock, it's um, it's great to see.
0: Yeah, and it's fantastic as well because you naturally decrease the cost of your inputs too by having your sheep running around essentially as walking fertilisers. On your landscape, it's fantastic. As wool growers and farmers, we're custodians of nearly 50% of Australia's landmass, and we have a choice to honour the landscape, which is so fantastic that a lot more people are starting to do, and this holistic approach to farming is by no means showing any signs of disappointment so far. So it's a really exciting space in regenerative agriculture and hopefully a way of the future for many wool growers and future generations. Well, that's a wrap for this week, folks. Thanks for your company. You can follow us on Instagram at Beyond the Bale or Twitter at Wool Innovation.
1: And if you have any feedback or questions about today's episode or any other episodes, you can contact the yarn at wool.com email address and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as possible.
0: I'm Ellie Bigwood.
1: I'm Ben Madwick.
0: Thanks for having a yarn with us.